0: Well, good morning, and welcome. There we go. Uh, welcome to Liberty Bible Church. My name is uh, Tim, one of the pastors uh, here. And before we jump into that passage in our sermon for this morning, let me pray for us. Uh, Father, we open your word to to hear from you, that we might not sin against you. And so hide our word, hide your word in our hearts, as we, as I, I preach, as I, I I turn our attention to your word, Father. And may it lead to lives that. That look like Jesus, I pray. Amen. A well, few things feel better than having people surrounding you admiring you. This happened to me a couple weeks ago uh, because of a, a generous birthday gift. Uh, I was gonna buy some new golf clubs. And to do that, I went to a golf shop and they just have you you swing uh, and they kind of have you try at a bunch of clubs. They watch your swing to help fit you to the right club. And so, I'm in this shop, and I I haven't played much golf recently, and and so I'm a little nervous to to swing in front of people. And I I you know I take a crack at it, and the guy's like, "That's a good swing." I was like, "Thank you." I uh, I keep swinging, and and people are kind of walking through the store, and they kind of stop, and they just watch me, and they just and and compliments start coming in. Uh, Wow, that looks so easy. I wish I swung like that. I actually began to get a little suspicious. Like, are you? Are you doing this to get me to buy clubs here? Like, because it's working. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I, so I, I finish up, and, and I want to be clear because you may be thinking, oh, does our pastor work during the week? What is he, is he just playing golf? What's he doing? Um, I've played golf for, for 25 years, which means, you know, I've probably played four or five times this year. I probably played maybe 10 times in the last three years, but I've played for over 25 years of my life. So for me, I can I cannot play golf for a long stretch of time, pick up a golf club, and have a swing that is, is natural, it's automatic, it's with ease. I'd really like for my discipleship to Jesus to be like that. So whatever I encounter in life, I respond to that moment the way Jesus would respond to that moment. But I don't. A couple weeks ago, I was on the phone with a friend, and he asked me a question at the end of our call, and it was a fair, pretty gentle question, and, and I just kind of geared up and gave him about a 20-minute rant to his question, he just let some things off my chest. And I just got to, I finished my rant and just felt, like, why do I even speak? If I had said nothing, it would have been an improvement on the universe than what I just did for the last 20 minutes. And I thought a lot about that phone call. I have thought a lot about my discipleship to Jesus. Why is it easier for me to, to pick up a golf club and swing it with ease than it is to, to live with the gentle kindness of Jesus? And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that we are in a series we're calling The Easy Yoke. And what I'm, I'm really saying is, is this is a discipleship series. And it's if you're a Christian, you and I should orient our our lives around three goals. Abiding with Jesus, training with Jesus, so that we can live like Jesus. And, And that's Matthew 28. Jesus doesn't say, tell people their sins are forgiven and they can go to heaven. Although that's true. What he says is, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Which shows both Jesus assumes we can obey his teachings, and two, he expects us to. So how do we become a person who lives like Jesus? And I want to begin by just defining that, what I mean by that. And what I mean by becoming a person who lives like Jesus is is I want to become the kind of person who naturally and easily does whatever Jesus would do if he were me. To live like Jesus is to become the kind of person who naturally and easily does whatever Jesus would do if he were us. And according to Jesus, that's the mission of the church, for us to obey him and to teach others to obey his commands. And so how do we become that kind of person? And as I said, there's three goals that we're going to orient a lot of our ministry around here at Liberty, which is live like Jesus, train like Jesus, uh, abide with Jesus. And those last two are what lead to the third. If, if you're abiding with Jesus and training with him, you will become the kind of person over time who naturally and easily does whatever Jesus would do if he were you. So that's what I want to talk about this morning, is, the, is how abiding with Jesus and training with Jesus makes you become that kind of person. And I want to start with, with the training piece. How training with Jesus makes us live like him. Um, now last week I kind of laid out my, my understanding of what training is. And there, there's three categories of discipleship to me. You can think of this in many ways. This is the way I think about it, which is teachings. We want to orient our discipleship to Jesus around his words in the scriptures, the word of God. Second is uh, practices, spiritual practices that made up Jesus' life. His lifestyle should reflect our lifestyle. And then third is community, to be surrounded by fellow believers. I'm going to spend the next three weeks on community, so I want to I talk about teachings and practices and how those make us into the kind of person who naturally and easily does whatever Jesus would do if he were us. Start with teachings. Uh, One of my favorite uh, teachings from Jesus is whenever he talks about the hypocrites because he gets a little saucy in those moments. Here's what he says in Matthew 6, 5. Uh, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Now I always thought hypocrites meant Someone who had good internal beliefs but bad external behavior. Right? So, Christians, we say we're to love the poor. So, a hypocrite would be someone who says, I love the poor, and then none of their life is directed towards serving or giving towards the poor. You have good internal beliefs but bad external behavior. That is not how Jesus defines a hypocrite. How Jesus defines a hypocrite is someone who has good external behavior and a bad heart. Someone who you would ask to lead the prayer meeting, but whose heart is far from God. Someone who uh, could pray in front of many people, and, and yet their own heart is not seeking the Father. And so that, that's important because what I want to be clear about is I, I will never be interested in trying to just get people or myself to externally obey Jesus' commands. Jesus is not interested in that. And you looking like a person who obeys his commands. He wants you to be the sort of person who naturally and easily obeys his commands because you want to. You desire to obey him. And how how does that work, or how do we become that kind of person? Well, let's use a case study. One of Jesus' commands, not my favorite. Love your enemies. One of his most repeated commands, love your enemies. So that means our goal is to become the sorts of people who naturally and easily want to bless those who would do us harm. Who would pray for those who would do us harm. What that doesn't mean is internally I'm raging at you, but here's a cup of cold water. Jesus is not interested in that for you. He doesn't want your external obedience without what's inside changing. And so let's think about that together, our own modern moments. Today, 93% of Americans are tired of how divided we are. That's according to one study. 93% of Americans are tired of how divided we are. So why are we still so divided? Well, in his book, Love Your Enemies, Arthur Brooks says the reason we're still divided is something called, wait for it, motive, attribution, asymmetry. I'm really sorry to do this to you, but let me explain that. What all that means is I assume that my idolatry and my beliefs are rooted in love and good faith. And if you disagree with me, it's proof that your ideas are rooted in hatred and evil. And he says, most Americans, that's the way we view people who disagree with us. And that leads to division. Brooks points out our, our levels in America of motive, attribution, asymmetry, last time I'll say it, is the same as the Israelis and Palestinians who are at war with one another. And so our cultural moment is everyone sees hating your enemies is awful. But we keep hating our enemies. We can't stop. So how does this... Uh, coincide with the teachings of Jesus. Well, we're seeing the evidence of the truth of Jesus' teachings right in front of our eyes. Hating your enemies is a terrible way to live your life. Hating your enemies is a terrible way to run a society. And so too often we see Jesus' teachings as as decent advice from a religious man who's far more religious than I'll ever be. And so it's more like life coaching. It's like, I'll take what I like and think about what I don't. But that's not how Jesus' teachings work. They are not advice, and they are not life coaching. They are how the universe works. My guess is no one is going to leave church this morning, walk out the front door, get a running start, start flapping your arms, and attempt to fly home. Because you know gravity. It's not going to work for you. So you don't try to fly home. Similarly, We have abundant evidence that hating your enemies is a terrible way to live. But how many of us continue to give our times and our our attention and our focus to people that are hating the people we hate? We keep living against the grain of the universe when it comes to loving our enemies. Jesus' teachings aren't a vice. He's like, listen, you can hate your enemies. It's a terrible way to live. Or you can love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So loving your enemies, it's not an unrealistic teaching from an out-of-touch religious man. It's gravity. It's how the universe works. And there's all kinds of evidence around us to prove it. And it's why I love the way Dallas Willard reflected on the early church in this theme. He writes, Jesus and his early associates overwhelmed the ancient world because they brought into it a stream of life at its deepest along with the best information possible on the most important matters. The early message was, accordingly, not experienced as something its hearers had to believe or do because something otherwise bad, something with no essential connection to life, would happen to them. The people initially impacted by that message concluded they would be fools to disregard it. He's saying two things I think are really important. The first is, the early church did not present the commands of Jesus as irrelevant commands to real life, and sometimes I think we have weird rules from the church that are relevant to real life, which makes it, which is why people don't take Jesus uh, seriously. There's there's one in particular, and I might offend people with this. I hope I don't, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try not to. Um, my uh, I played cards in uh, my grandmother's church when I was a kid, and I didn't know that was wrong because I played cards with my grandma every night at her dining room table. And she was the best person to play cards with, except for the fact she always beat me, and that was terrible. Um, but but at her fiftieth wedding anniversary, I'm in a church, I'm playing cards with my cousins, and she comes in and she just lets us have it. And I have no idea what's happening, what's we've done what we've done wrong. It's like I'm in I'm doing what you taught me to do and I'm good at it. Like this is your fault, not mine. But I didn't know no cards in church is a rule. That's not a rule in the Bible, and it's irrelevant to bad to, to real life, ultimately. And so often when we we hear a command like, love your enemies, it's like, but Jesus doesn't live in our day. He doesn't face what what we have to face. And so we disconnect his teachings from real life. But the second thing Willard says, and this is what I I really want us to, to hear, is that the people initially impacted by the message concluded they would be fools to disregard it. And what I think he means by this is, of the early church, one of their central ethics that they lived intentionally by was loving their enemies. There's a couple of books I, I would highly recommend to you if, if you're a reader: "Destroyer of the Gods" by Larry Hurtado, or "The Patient Ferment of the Early Church." Detail how that that became the most quoted verse in the early church. It was not John three sixteen? It was love your enemies. That was their gospel. And over time, Christians went from people murdered by Romans to Romans becoming Christians. Because Romans saw their own culture, which was violence, destructive of human life, disregarding of the vulnerable. And they saw Christians who loved their enemies and prayed for those who persecuted them. And that was such a better reality And I wonder if we made that our central ethos, our the command we made our lives about as a church—love your enemies—if the same thing might not happen in our own moments in culture today. To build our lives on the reality of Jesus, that the good life is loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So that's how teachings lead you to become like Jesus. You stop viewing them as advice from a very religious man, and you start saying, "Well, I don't try to fly." that doesn't work. Similarly, I don't try to hate my enemies because I know it doesn't work. That's not the good life. So that's teachings. But second, practices. How does having a lifestyle or the spiritual practices of Jesus, how does that change us? Well, I have two kids that just started Little League. um, And my eight-year-old, I went to his first practice. And it it was just fun watching what they were doing at the first practice. And here's what they did not do at the first practice. The coach didn't come up and say, uh, hey, guys, good news. Uh, I got uh, Lance Lynn from the Chicago White Sox is going to come and throw batting practice to you. I'm using Lance Lynn because he's from my hometown and because I don't know that the Cubs have a good enough picture to make this illustration work, <laughs> and I say that as a Cubs fan. Um, it's like, hey, guys, you've never hit a baseball before. So let's see if you can hit a 90-mile-an-hour fastball. And then he went and threw practices, and the kids were crying, and it was bad. And That's not how the first practice went. It was slow grounders, and kids not even be able to do that. It was catch pop-ups, but not even with a glove in your hand yet because you're not ready for that. Before you swing a bat, he had a, a piece of PVC pipe to learn how to turn your body properly into a swing. In other words, he didn't start with the end, trying to hit major league pitching, he started with very simple, doable practices. And I'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead, but but loving your enemies is like trying to hit major league pitching. It's really hard. It's why almost no one does it, but it's really hard to do. And so Jesus gives us a practice. The equivalent of, of a spiritual grounder or a, a pop-up you catch without your glove. He gives us a practice to help us become the kind of person who would naturally and easily bless those who would do us harm. And here it is. You have heard that it was said, you Shall love your enemies and hate your you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. You're to pray for your enemies. Jesus gives you an easy practice that if you embrace this practice, over time, you will become the kind of person who naturally and easily loves those who would seek to do you harm. Now, I want to be clear what that doesn't mean. Um, Because I preached Psalm 63 a few weeks ago, and I, I made the point there, and I still very much believe it, That doesn't mean only praying nice things. Your first prayer for your enemies may be out of Psalm 10. Break the arm of the wicked person. It's the Bible. If you don't like that, you can email God about that. (laughs) Break the arm of the wicked. Because that's what you want to do. So you just take that to the Father. I mean, what Jesus is saying essentially is, get me involved with your enemies. Get me involved with your enemies. Just pray what's there. Pray it out. So that's probably your first prayer. Break their arms. And apparently, according to the scriptures, the Father will receive that prayer. Pray that for a while and you might find, I don't, I don't think I like talking like this. And you might start praying, Father, I see, I see them harming me. I see them harming other people. Stop them. I don't want anyone else hurt. And you pray that for a while and, and eventually, maybe, you become the kind of person who prays what Jesus prays. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. By praying for our enemies, we are entering into a a practice we can do to one day become something that now we can't do. But, and I'll build on this from last week, those of you who were here, if your practice around your enemies is to, to engage with news media or podcasts that that cultivate hate for your enemies, you're going to hate your enemies. It's why 93% of Americans are tired of the culture we live in and we're not changing. Maybe instead of the time in front of the television or a podcast, we pray for those we believe are doing great harm. So Jesus gives us a practice. Um, And last, last thought on that. When Jesus was being nailed to a cross, it was not hard for him to pray, Father, forgive them what they know not what they're doing. That was his, his automatic response to being murdered. Father, forgive them. It was, it was kindness and salvation because that's who he is. He's that kind of person. And if you and I are going to become that kind of person, that's the natural automatic response we want to get to for our enemies is desiring their salvation. So that's practices. All that's very difficult. But what about abiding with Jesus and how that makes us live like um, Jesus? Now, at at some unspecified date in the near future, uh, I will turn 40 years old. And I've learned at my almost 40 laps around the sun uh, that people are going to do what they want to do. And you could try to stop them, but ultimately... There's very little good in trying to stop someone from what they want to do because they're going to find a way. The better thing is to make them want to do something else. And I know that's true in my own life. I will do whatever I want to do. And this is a deeply Christian idea that ultimately we are what we love. What we desire is where our soul is carried towards. And that was Augustine's thinking. And he understood this because that was his life. For most of his life, he pursued the world's goods. And that's what his desires took him, until he had an experience with God. And this is what he wrote about that experience. I took too long to love you, beauty so ancient and so new. I took too long to love you, but there you were, inside, and I was outside. And there I searched for you, and into those shapely things you made, my misshapen self went sliding. You were with me. But I wasn't with you. Those things which shouldn't exist unless they existed in you held me back far from you. You called and shouted and shattered my deafness. You flashed. You shone. You put my blindness to flight. You smelled sweet and I drew breath. And now I pant for you. I tasted you and now I'm starving and parsed. You touched me and I burst into flame with desire for your peace. Augustine is saying, I searched everywhere for my loves and my desires to be filled. And nothing mattered until I met the presence of God. And it's even the most interesting thing about that book, Confessions, which is probably the first memoir type of book we have. But it's not a typical memoir. The whole book is a prayer to God. He writes about his life before The Father. And I think that gets really well at at what I, I mean by the goal of your life being to abide with Jesus, that your whole life is defined and marked by the presence of God with you. And ultimately, if you're going to become the kind of person who loves your enemies, you're going to have to drink deeply of the presence of God in your life. And I'll say this throughout the series, but nothing will change you more than deepening your love for God. That if if we all are going to get what we want in the end anyway, then if if what you want is God, you'll be okay. But if you want something else, you won't. And so we should be desiring to train our, our hearts to the Father, to His love for us. So back to our case study. How do we become the kind of person who loves our enemies naturally and easily like Jesus? And the answer is, Spend time with Jesus. Because when you see him living, when you read the Gospels, you cannot anything but be blown away by who he was as a person. I mean, I'm sure someone said this at some point, but I've never heard a non-Christian, someone who doesn't follow Jesus, read the Gospels and say, Jesus sounds like a really terrible person. Because he's loving his enemies. He's blessing people that want to do him harm. He's reaching out to the vulnerable and to the weak. So spend time with, with Jesus. And if you spend time with Jesus, what you're going to find is he loves you even when you're acting like his enemy. I mean, that's the whole point of our, our series, The Easy Yoke. We've made messes of our lives. We're exhausted and worn out. It's not working for us. So what does he say? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. you just read that passage and, and think on who Jesus is and how kind he is towards you. You will become the kind of person who wants to spread that kindness loose into the world. When you see Jesus forgiving people as he died, you will become the kind of person who can probably overlook the minor offenses that you've refused to forgive of people in your family or who you work with. If you read Romans 5 and actually hear what it's saying, where Paul writes, For if, while we were God's enemies, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The Bible is clear. You and I are enemies of God outside of the forgiving work of Jesus. And yet, what was God's posture towards you and me as his enemy? It was to send his son into the world so that his son could not be listened to for the entire three years of his ministry. Even his own disciples didn't understand him. So then he could get murdered and shamed and killed in front of a public execution. Buried in a tomb, he's so broke, he can't even afford his own tomb to buy Jesus, the son of God, to be raised to new life to give us another chance. Spend time with that guy, and then come and talk to me about your enemies and how you cannot love them. Or for me, how could I come to you and say, I can't forgive this person? When that's the story that's the center story of my life. You and I need... The presence of Jesus. And so that's well, we, what my hope for every time we gather together is wherever you are, if you're a non-Christian, you don't believe in the gospel, you're a Christian, you've been uh, you know, coming to church your whole life, is you come in each week and you believe more deeply the Father is seeking you through his son Jesus who died for you, was raised to new life for you, and then sent the Spirit out to chase you and bring you home. And we're going to talk about that every week. Because that that is what matters most to be to be drawn back into the presence of that story. And so, with that, I want to I want to end by entering into what I know is a, is always a controversial topic, at least in the American church. Because I knew uh, when I when I got hired, you know, everyone the question is, what's he going to change, and um, how's he going to handle that? I know, and that's those are fair questions. Um, and I, I try to be really slow with most things because. I don't know anything coming into a new church. I just wanted to learn and understand. But there was one conviction I I came in with. Um, One change I was willing to to maybe push a little faster than than might even have been wise. And and so I want want you to hear my heart on that. I'm not asking for you to agree with me on this, but for you to understand why we've made this change. So here we go. Uh, For 1,500 years, the church practiced communion weekly, and that change happens from weekly to monthly or quarterly or, or whatever the change became at the Protestant Reformation. Now, I'm really grateful for the Protestant Reformation because the gospel of grace got refocused. That was good. And more than that, it was also there was a conviction: we got to teach the Bible to to our people again. We're not sermons; services are in Latin. So Luther tr- uh, translated the Bible into German, so you could read the Bible in your own home. All that's amazing, good stuff. Um, but over time, the, the sermon became the most important part of the sermon. So much so that one pastor in the Reformation, um, Zwingli, moved the communion table from the center of the worship space. Off to the side and replaced it with his pulpit. And I think that was a huge mistake. And I think some of the not so good from the last 500 years can tie back to that move. Why we have a million do- denominations often splitting theological hairs that I, I don't sense Jesus is particularly passionate about. It's also meant the center of a lot of churches is the pastor. And that's not worked out well either for anyone, pastors included. But we've seen numerous falls. And I'm not just talking the famous guys that write books. You can be a little celebrity pastor in a small church where everything revolves around you. I don't think any of that is good. Again, I want to be clear. I respect Christians will come at this very differently. Weekly, monthly, all of that's okay. okay. I'm not saying I'm right, you're wrong, any of that. I'm just trying to explain my conviction Because what I want each service to be, as I mentioned, is not about anything I've said to you in the last 30 minutes. I hope I've been helpful. I hope you feel more drawn to the heart of the Father. I hope you believe more deeply in the way of Jesus. But none of what I've said in the last 30 minutes is the most important part of our time together this morning. The most important part of our time each week is to abide with Jesus at his table. And to hear Hear those words spoken over us by our Savior. This is my body given to you. Do you have any doubt that I love you? That my good is for you? My body was given for you. My blood was shed for you. I died to bring you home. Do not question my love for you. And so we gather. And if if you do that week after week, after a week abiding with him at his table, you will find yourself changing. You will find yourself loving your enemy. Because you were his enemy. And what did he do for you? This is my body given for you. Here is my blood shed for you. He has given his life to get you his enemy back at his table. Eat that meal for 20 years, you will change. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to come. If, if you're a Christian, we're going to come in, in groups of five to seven. Uh, take the bread. We're going to dip it into the juice and eat it together at the instruction of those serving you. Um, if you need gluten-free, all the bread's gluten-free, so we have you covered. We've shifted things up a little bit this morning. We have one section back in the back there. So this is, this is always risky whenever you change anything. Um, But we're just going to, we're just, we'll figure it out, right? It's okay. But one section there, three uh, along the front here, and then one up in the balcony. Um, If you're not yet a Christian, this meal is not for you, but we believe the Father is seeking you, and I would love to talk to you about what it means to become a a Christian. And so uh, I want to end by telling you something a friend told me this week. And we were talking about the, the shift to weekly communion and how he was processing that. And he said something that I loved, just totally captured my heart without me ever saying anything that, like this to him. But we were talking about community. And he said, I love how the most important part of the service, you go away. <laughs> and we get the table of Jesus. Yes. Amen. And it's time for me to go away. Thanks for being with us today. If you'd like more information on our church or a place to connect, you can check us out on the web at findliberty.net.